0: What's happening? Welcome to Wong Notes Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Wong. I'm stoked today because you know what? I did it. I finally did it. I made a guitar course. I get emails, messages every day asking about lessons or my approach to certain things, especially in the rhythm guitar world with Wolfpack and Fearless Flyers and Corey Wong music and other sessions and pop albums that I've played on. I finally made a course talking about all this stuff and I figured it'd be better to just do a course than to meet with people one-on-one because I could just give you all the information that I think you should have about the guitar and music and artistry and then if you have questions afterwards I don't know Maybe send me a message then or we can talk. Anyway, I got a guitar course. It's really great. I put a lot of time into it. It's like, I don't know, several. It's a lot of hours of lessons. There's a lot of lessons. Some stuff talking about specifically the right hand, left hand, chord voicings, time feel, artistry, how to prepare for certain things, how to practice in general, and also just some actual guided practice sessions where I show you three examples of how I will sit down and practice if I have one hour to play the guitar. And that's that. So check it out. You can check it out on my website, Corey Wong Music, or just like look it up, Corey Wong Guitar Course, whatever. Okay, today on the show, we have one of my favorite musicians on the planet. I'm not just saying that because she's my friend. I'm not just saying that because she's on this show. She is literally one of my favorite musicians on the planet. Incredible musician, Sierra Hall you know she's on because it's on the title of this podcast that you clicked on so sierra honestly i've played a few times with her and she has blown me away every single time like hands down one of the cleanest best musicians i've ever played i i i I can't even describe it she's actually that good you see videos of her playing you're like dang did they like edit that no, she's really that good. We, uh, we have a song together that we wrote called Western Winds that's on an album of mine that I put out about a year ago. And we recorded a couple other songs that are on a project that's coming out sometime in the future. And also, we're going on tour together. I'm going on tour, and I said, I want to have Sierra come also because she's one of my favorite musicians, and we always have a blast when we play together. So she's going to come out on tour with me in the US, which I'm super stoked about. Sierra is a very well-known musician in the bluegrass community, but I think of her as so much more than that. I always, I, I look at her artistry and I think, oh my gosh, she's like transcendent from that, the genre, the genre's amazing, but she's transcendent above that genre, above the mandolin. She's a songwriter, singer, mandolin player, just extraordinaire of everything music. So. You know what? I, 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 I'm, I'm talking her up. And you know what? I stand by it. I could continue to go on for five minutes on how awesome she is, but I'm going to let you just listen to the interview, and then you should also just listen to a bunch of her music because she's totally dope. All right. Without further ado, Sierra Hall. This season of Wong Notes Podcast is brought to you by DistroKid. If you're not familiar with DistroKid, it's who I use to upload my music and whatnot to the internet. So I put out an album, DistroKid will send it to Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon. With other services, sometimes they charge you by the album per year. So like you have five albums out, they'll charge you for each album every year. With DistroKid, it's just one yearly fee. As many albums as your band has, they can be up there. And that's just one cost. I love it as somebody who puts out a lot of music. And if you're in a band or that sort of thing, you can actually pick your team and they'll do splits for your team. So you can choose this person gets 25% of the royalties, this person gets 25%, this person gets 2% because they didn't contribute to the group project or whatever. No, 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 no. You can choose whatever percentage you want for as many collaborators as you want. So it's amazing. Check it out, DistroKid. Let's get to it. Well, Sierra, thanks so much for being on the show. Stoked to have you.
1: So stoked to be here.
0: And before we just started this, we were, before the official start, we were talking a little bit about, I started playing a few more shows. Things kind of are getting, uh, we're finding what that's going to look like. I know you've been doing some shows in different configurations, and I've seen you in some different configurations with your live ensemble. Yeah. One of them being duo Mm -hmm. with you and Justin Moses, who plays like every instrument there is, and then you with like a five-piece band and different things. Can you tell me a little bit about your different live ensembles? And then also, I guess, just how you approach playing differently in them.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of been fun lately to have kind of some different things going on. Justin and I, we've played a lot of music together over the years. He's also my husband, for those that don't yeah. know that. And uh, we, you know, he's toured with me under the umbrella of my band in years past. And we've we've gotten to play a lot of music together that way. But a few years back, we decided to start doing some duo shows. Um, he was no longer touring in my full-time band configuration and, you mm-hmm. know, kind of staying off the road a little bit more. And and so we started thinking, what would be something really special we could do, just the two of us, because we love playing music together and still wanted that to be part of our, our sort of musical world you know so we yeah. probably do i don't know 25 or 30 things a year as a duo now these days and try to keep that sort of part of the regular rotation which during kind of the crazy time we've had over the past year and a half it's been so nice to have you know a husband here at home that i can actually play music with somebody that that i can um, kind of collaborate with and so that's been really special and and uh, and then when I'm doing full band shows these days, yeah, it's a five-piece band. It's upright bass, a uh, guy who plays acoustic and electric guitar, fiddle, and drums. And, of course, I'm playing mandolin, octave mandolin, a little bit of electric mandolin. So that's kind of been my regular full band touring lineup. And then I've been doing some um, solo stuff here and there. I did the Telluride Bluegrass Festival solo and did a thing, uh, the Kroga Arts uh, Festival on Kroga Lake a few weeks back solo. So yeah. still trying to find ways to do some solo performances as well, because I really find that to be, you know, something that is challenging in its own way. It's sort of a different yeah. approach, no matter what the situation is. So So I've been enjoying kind of flipping back and forth between all these different projects.
0: Now, most of us know you as a mandolin player, rightfully so as far as the instrumentation side of things you're a great songwriter singer but you shred on the guitar and you're amazing <laughs> on the guitar too so do you well, ever do you ever play that. guitar too or do you just play mandolin in your live show
1: yeah you know it's funny guitar has been one of those things that early on i would mostly just play on like slow pretty stuff you know if it was something mm. that two guitars kind of lent itself to in a in a a, a pretty way um and then i kind of got away from playing much guitar live because I started playing more octave mandolin. So it was more like oh, kind of okay. focused on the octave mandolin for a while. And when I made this album called Weighted Mind, it was kind of trying to take that singer-songwriter guitar vocal approach, but really make it very mandolin-centric. And so yeah. octave mandolin kind of bridges that gap a little bit between guitar and mandolin, just because it has the lower voicing and fills... Kind of like it lives more in that range, but you still get all the mandolin voicings. And then I don't know. Over the last year or two, I've really gotten more back into playing guitar after after hardly playing at all in my live shows. I've sort of started bringing it back in. So I play a lot of guitar on the duo shows with Justin. The two of us yeah. do do a, a fair amount of that. But um, yeah, some in my live show more and more these days, kind of bringing it back. But yeah, I grew I grew up playing a lot of flat picking guitar. You know, loving. Tony Rice, Brian Sutton, people like that. And, you know, yeah. trying to play all the fiddle tunes and stuff like that on the guitar.
0: Well, you do more than try. Oh, well. <laughs> Nail. Okay, man. so I, I, I know that you understand the guitar, understand the role of the guitar. And I think, particularly in bluegrass music, because you know that, I want to ask this question. I don't always understand the role of the mandolin. And, like, how I can weave within it in other situations. Now, the next statement I'm going to say is absolutely absurd. And it's that, basically, really the only two mandolin players I've played with, it's you and Chris Thiele. Well, (laughs) Which is, it's insane. There's just, I haven't (laughs) played, like, there's no, there's not really mandolin players in my circle. Yeah. And, like, I have played with a couple other ones, but they're really, like... Not actually di- digging in, or like you yeah, know, sure, really getting in into the weeds together. Totally. And that being said, the way that you play and the way that Chris plays, you each have your own unique thing, and you are you approach it maybe also in a different way than what would be in in certain settings than what would be quote unquote traditional mandolin playing. Sure. So I'm curious because you know the role of guitar, you understand how to talk that speak that language. I'm curious. How the the role of the mandolin typically is used, how it's different than the guitar, and how the guitar can complement mandolin parts. For people like myself, who will sometimes sit in on a bluegrass or whatever session, and I'm like, "Uh, I think I know what I should be doing or what my role is, but... You know, like I, I just I think it's under, it's important to understand each individual instrument's role to better understand your own role.
1: Sure. Totally. Well, I, for me, I kind of approach it differently depending on the musical situation, like the way I might play mandolin if you and I are collaborating, especially if like when I'm sitting in with your full band, you know, yeah. would be much different than the way I would approach playing in a traditional bluegrass band or or even like if Justin and I played duo, you know, because and and, and I know guitar is similar like that to you too, depending on sure. if you're yeah. you know surround what you're surrounded by. But typically like if I think about mandolin in the traditional setting, there's no drums typically. So you yeah. know it's it's um a very percussive instrument in terms of the rhythm element. So like I really tend to think about rather than than making the instrument feel chordal, if that makes sense. I, I sort of think more rhythmically and think about mm-hmm. how and of course, you know, chords are part of that. And I kind of get the the upper structure of the chord when you've got bass and guitar yeah. you know, providing all the low harmony, you get kind of those upper voicings, which is cool. But um yeah, I mean, bluegrass is such a a front uh, heavy music and where the beat is placed you know yeah. that is so different than like once you add drums and you're playing in a different stylistic setting so like I always kind of laugh and say if the beat is here in the center the mandolin is you know usually the mandolin chop lies somewhere just on top of that you know and in yeah. other forms of music the snare hit might be just behind where the center of the beat is and it's consistent it's not it's not like um rush or drag thing, just, in, in, totally. I know you know what yeah, I'm yeah. talking about, but for the listeners, just, like, you know, where the beat is placed and, and thinking about, you know, um, how that makes the groove feel. And so mm-hmm. it's funny, after spending a lifetime of playing bluegrass, when I sort of expanded all these other genres, I have to almost, like, remind myself to, you know, really get in touch with what the groove is in that moment. And you're, yeah. you're such a grooved bass player. You totally, you know, I'm sure can relate to that. I don't know if you've ever, like tried to jam in a bluegrass setting and feel like, oh my God, it feels like everybody's just playing so on the front, you know, and and, yeah. and uh <laughs> and I, I feel that way sometimes if I'm playing like with a rock band or playing with with you know just even an Americana band or something where the drums are yeah. kinda laid back and I find myself really kind of pushing forward. And so so in that regard I think like how I would approach playing Totally just depends on the setting. But, you know, it's like it can be fun to play other styles of music where I feel like I can sort of approach mandolin as more of a color instrument instead of feeling like mm. you're responsible for so much of the groove. Um, yeah. But at the same time, like I just did this show. I'm doing a tour with Bail Fleck next month. And so we did one one show so far at a festival called Rocky Grass just last month and in a in a setting like that where it's your traditional bluegrass band no drums i love it it's so much fun to just play rhythm i mean that's i love the yeah. soloing but getting to really be a strong part of the rhythm section is, is, you know, it almost doesn't get any better as a mandolin player than to get to, to play that role. But yeah, but like sitting in with your band, for example, I feel like my options kind of free up a little bit where it's not, you know, that's not Mm. my role as much. I could, you know, be, be more um, complementary to the overall color and um, harmonic texture, almost more like a violin player might be while still being able to be more rhythmic, you know, since I have a, a flat pick, but I don't know. It's just a different approach, I think, depending on the setting.
0: That's interesting. So in in the bale of fleck ensemble that he's got, your you what your approach is like. I am the rhythm section here. So the, a lot of times it's like you're. The, they call it the chop, right? So oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So if you're the chop, you're kind of covering that. What would you you consider yourself? The hi hat and snare in that sen- scenario, and the bass is like the base and the kick. Yeah, what?
1: yeah, pretty much. Pretty much cuz you know, typically you have that sort of uh, you know, the mandolins playing on all the ands, you know, so one and, yeah. and and and, you know, and really trying to lock forces with the bass for sure to kind of create that um that sound. I mean, ideally I think some of the best, you know, bluegrass bluegrass rhythm sections you have where the bass and the mandolin just sound like one thing, you know, it sounds yeah. like one person playing both parts, you know, and I think that's sort of that's sort of like when it all really comes together, you know, um that you're f- really able to feel the groove from the other musicians in such a way. I mean, it's like that with any style of music when you're really feeling it and everybody's locking in, but especially that relationship between the mandolin and the bass player is kind of huge. I think to sort of round out what would feel like the bluegrass drummer, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, Yeah.
0: So when it comes time for you to play melodic or play a solo or something, Are you able to mentally release yourself from that role? Or are are you still feeling like, "Ah, I still have to cover this sort of thing? No, I usually, when it's solo
1: time, I usually just throw that to the wayside. And, And what happens typically, like in a bluegrass ensemble, and not always, but you have the banjo that sometimes will switch to a chop. You have a fiddle that'll yeah. sometimes switch to a chop or dobro that'll switch to a chop. And it's not like it has to happen every time. Sometimes it's just yeah. a nice release to to not hear it for a little bit. But it's it's pretty typical that when the mandolin drops out, somebody else starts taking over that backbeat percussive sound and sort of helps carry that groove throughout.
0: That's cool. I mean, so the Bale of Fleck thing, there's so many, I mean, playing with our heroes collaborating with our heroes is something that's just so rad and so cool when it gets to the point where we can, for many of us that get to do that, is there something that you do to mentally prepare yourself going into those? Or are you just like, yeah, I deserve to be here because I'm (laughs) one of the best mandolin players in the world. And I know you're a very humble person and you're like, yeah, well, but, you know, I did work really hard and I love you, but it's like, you're one of the best mandolin players in the world you deserve to be there that's why you're called to be there but there's there's uh there's a certain mental game that we can sometimes play with ourselves personally speaking whether we either psych ourselves out a little bit or can sometimes even overthink something oh yeah i don't know What what's your mental preparation going into those sort of Well,
1: the good thing about getting to work with Bela is that at least he and I have worked together before. Never quite like this, but he he produced my album, Weighted Mind. And so we've worked closely together on my music before. But this is even different because this is me stepping into a role to play his music. And so I haven't ever done that with him before. So it's been really fun um, to just, you know, I, I know what his kind of process is. I know how serious he is about the music that he's working on, even whenever we were working on my project, anything that he does, he does it at 150%. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like he's, he's full in and he's going to do it at the highest level he can do it. So thankfully there's been a lot of rehearsal time put in, you know, but I think... All these musicians that are part of this this band that's touring in September, it's Michael Cleveland on the fiddle, Brian Sutton on the guitar, Mark Schatz on the bass, and then my husband Justin is playing multiple instruments like fiddle, banjo, mandolin, like twin parts, and then playing all the dobro parts. And so... You know, it's a lot. It's a long record. There's about 19 songs, 19 tracks on the record. And, you know, we're playing every one of them. And some of the songs are six minutes long. I mean, on average, they're probably six minutes long and it's, you know, complicated arrangements and stuff. So it is, you know, early on, especially I was kind of like, oh, God, okay, here we go, because I've been busy and trying to make sure that I'm like not going to show up to the rehearsal Not knowing what's going on. So really trying to make sure I'm putting my time in, but also knowing that when we get together, there's really going to be time to really get in the, get in there, you know, in the throes and like really work through everything. So, yeah, I mean, it it is a little easy to get psyched out, but at least by the time that we played the show, we had put in so much rehearsal time. We could sort of just enjoy it and know that yeah. okay we've done our we've done our prep work and like you know no matter what happens it's probably not going to be perfect it never is you know especially the first time playing that much music but but we made it through and it was it was great you know there were small mistakes here and there but for the most part everybody just did an amazing job and so i think went for me knowing that i'm going to be surrounded by such high level musicianship, kind of there is a pressure to rise to the occasion and make sure that you're not yeah. just like being the weak link, you know, so it kind mm-hmm. of makes you go, okay, I got to make sure I have my crap together that I know what I'm doing. But yeah. at the same time, there's <laughs> also comfort in knowing that, you know what, if I blow something, Brian Sutton's got my back over there on the chords, or, sure. you, know, <laughs> yeah. you know, So, so there's comfort in that too, I think.
0: That's interesting. I would not have expected you to say, we've done so much rehearsal time. At the same time, it makes so much sense. Like every band has a different amount that they rehearse together as a band. And every player has a different amount of preparation time, practice time. Now, that being under the under the guise of we all know the difference that practice and rehearsal are not the same thing. You practice before you get to rehearsal. Exactly. You put in your own work before you get to rehearsal. For this particular tour, How much time did you – would you guess you had to put in personally, and then how much rehearsal time was there?
1: Hmm. pre work – so I played on some of the records. So some of the songs I kind of already knew four or five tracks because I had been a part of, but then there's the other, you know, 15 or whatever that I I hadn't played on before. So, I mean, gosh, I wouldn't even know. I mean, there was many hours, many, many hours of just, you know – you know, you think 19 tracks, a couple hours a song at least to just like learn the basic arrangements. And that's just like, you know how it is. You learn something. And then by the time you're six songs removed from it, you've probably forgot half of what you've learned. And then, you know, it'll be easier when you go back to it because you're like, oh, that really, what is that really complicated phrase on this thing that I have to like double with the fiddle or whatever. And then, okay, well, let me go back and revisit that. So, I mean, yeah, definitely Many hours, you know, per song, kind of getting in there and just, just remembering everything. And then. Rehearsal time. So for this particular thing, it was kind of funny. The tour is about three weeks and I think it's like 15 shows or something like that in September. Mm -hmm. But we had this festival called Rocky Grass, which is a festival we all kind of love in our our acoustic world out in Colorado that happens every year. And so we were like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll play that festival and that'll sort of be our Uh, break in for playing this music for the first time. And then we'll sort of be a little bit more prepared come September. But the funny thing is, is the rehearsal that we had actually happened with the full band happened back in May, the end of May. And we didn't actually Mm. get to play the show till July because Bela and his family kind of relocated to Colorado for the summer because of the Telluride festival happening and then Rocky Grass yeah. was going to happen like 3 weeks later and he's got young kids and they didn't want to they didn't feel comfortable flying so they just drove out there and decided to stay so the only time yeah. we could rehearse was about a month <laughs> before <laughs> we actually got to play this music so we had four intense days of rehearsal um from about like 9 to 6 every day okay, for yeah. 4 days and that allowed us to, and everybody showed up pretty much knowing the music and we just worked yeah. out any kinks and, you know, like just getting it under our fingers, changing anything we might want to change for a live performance. And then, um, yeah, we, we we had four intense days of that. And then we didn't play the music together until the week of the festival. And then our set was on Sunday. And I think we rehearsed Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then Saturday and Sunday. And one of those days was literally like rehearsing from probably 9 till about 10 p.m. I mean, with very little breaks. Like, we got in there. We were really rehearsing a lot. But I also think that, you know, and you have to keep in mind all these arrangements, like, we're trying to do it without any charts. Everything, you know, just just trying to be. And it was completely new music for a two-hour set. So I think... For somebody like Bela, he's really good at making everyone feel inspired to want to work on the music without being like a, (laughs) you know, he's not being a slave driver about it. It's just he knows what it's going to take for the music to be really good. Of course, we could have got up there and probably played it fine, you know, but for it to really feel confident and feel like this isn't our first rodeo, which is kind of what you hope for, even though it is the first show, you want it to feel like, no, we know what we're doing. And and so I felt like um, by the time we had done all that, you know, like I said, of course there were smaller things, but there was a real confidence kind of going into that set because we had put so much time in on, on working yeah. through everything. So yeah.
0: That is a lot more rehearsal time than I expected, but also totally makes sense with how great a band sounds. Like, I mean, you know how it is. Once you're kind of like tour tight, when you've been playing absolutely. the show for months, and then all of a sudden, like, yeah, if if, if people don't lose uh, lose motivation mid tour and just start like, oh, I don't know, we played this a hundred times. I'm gonna start messing around with whatever. Like, if people stay in it, it the band can just sound incredible.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, Twenty shows in. Well, it was funny because they live streamed the show, and and my manager hadn't heard any of the music yet. You know, and he said. Because I was just like, sorry, can't talk, still rehearsing or whatever. And he was just, yeah. you know, he, he <laughs> laughed and said that the album's called Bela Fleck, My Bluegrass Heart. He said he should call it Bela Fleck, My Bleeding Fingers, because <laughs> we <had> rehearsed <laughs> so much. But then w- whenever he watched the live stream, he's like, okay, after hearing all this music, I get why you guys had to practice that much to know what you're doing, you know?
0: Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> so, So much of that music also built into it is improvisation.
1: Sure, yeah.
0: So in, but behind the improvisation, there's nuances and intricacies of how things are going to weave, what people are doing behind the improviser out front, that sort of thing. In your world, do you guys discuss, or maybe even just in this particular thing, and, and in your project, when you play under your own name, do you discuss the direction of improvisation or like, oh, let's sit in this world or is it really just kind of a free-for-all?
1: I don't know that that was discussed a lot on the Bela stuff, but I also think that there's, like, maybe it's a little different when the direction is kind of already set because we're learning music yeah. from recorded music, you know? Yeah. So there's kind of a vibe already happening. Like, there's a song called Charm School that he recently released um, that Chris played on, and, and it's it's you know kind of like he laughed and said this is our jamband piece because it's like it's very you know if you want to go to the moon on this one that's the vibe you know to go there yeah 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 um but then there's you know some other tunes that are like to just go to the moon wouldn't feel appropriate because of the spirit of the song you know and and so like mm. like from the the recorded um material so to speak there's sort of enough that one can kind of grasp onto and go this is kind of the vibe this is the vibe he envisioned from putting all this music together for this record and so like I kind of use that as a way to sort of take that and launch from there as far as the spirit of improvisation um when working with my own band like especially if it's something new say I just wrote something and I'm you know showing it to the guys and I want to try it out and it's not like I can be like here's this Stuart Duncan solo for you to kind of you know, emulate the spirit yeah. of or whatever, <laughs> uh, or, or learn lines from, um, you know, I do like to really discuss direction and, and especially dynamic direction because even sometimes improvising, you know, not just necessarily note choice, but like sort of the climatic build or, you know, drops and falls and all that stuff. Um, I like to kind of get in there and talk about what that needs to feel like, especially, if it's a vocal something that needs to like lead to a certain place or, or just needs to really come down or if it's going to be three solos in a row and we don't need them to feel flatlined and just trying to, you know, find ways to have that, that rise and fall and, and make things sound more exciting. Cool. What about you? I'm curious about you. (laughs) You like to discuss that stuff?
0: Most of the players that I play with, I know they're playing pretty well. Some of them we've been playing together since college, you know, so we have 10 years or whatever of of experience together. But um, a lot of times I will just assume that there's based on the vibe of the song and which particular person I asked to take a solo on the song, it will inform what I'm looking for. Yeah. You know, like right now in my band, I have six horns. And every one of them is capable of playing a A-plus solo. You know, same with, you know, at literally everybody on every instrument. Kevin on keys could play an A-plus solo. Sonny on the bass can. You yeah. Know, the, every, every position. But, you know, it's like uh, Kenny Holman on tenor sax has a certain vibe to what he brings to the table as opposed to Eddie Barbash. Totally. Who also plays in your band sometimes. So, like, Eddie's got a thing... And it's very potent. And some songs I might think more... Oh, you have a little more of Eddie's thing. Some songs a little more of Kenny's thing. Totally. But then also it's like, okay, what would Kenny's thing sound like on this tune? That already is kind of like informing what I'm looking for a little bit. Totally. Sometimes what a particular person as an individual brings, here's a framework for you to kind of work within that. And also a lot of times the people that work with me, it's nice to know that they know my references, the things that I'm into.
1: Yeah. I think that can be important to have that like kind of understood frame of reference, you know, where it's like, you know, you kind of can work with people sometimes and there's that understanding without having to, you know, spell everything out because you guys, you know, come from a certain world or you can at least sort of know each other's influences and kind of have that frame of reference that that can be huge
0: yeah okay there's one reference that i don't quite understand speaking of reference there's one like (laughs) institution that i don't quite get and i need somebody to explain it to me (laughs) i think you're the person (laughs) we'll
1: see we'll see
0: well because actually you you brought up a you taught me the last time we hung out, we had dinner and you were explaining something about, uh, I think it was like what, what you guys were going to be doing on the, the Bayless stuff. And you were talking about what Justin was going to be doing. he's like, oh, and you said he's going to be doing oh, twin, uh, twin violin, twin, fiddles, twin yeah. fiddles. I was like, wait, 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 hold up, hold up, hold up. Like, is he playing two of them at once? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, because the phrase was kind of new to me, I imagine some of the listeners of this podcast don't understand what that is either so let's first let's let's just teach everybody else <laughs> teach us what it means when you say somebody's well, playing twin fiddle, twin guitar, twin mando whatever this
1: may be a very like bluegrass coming from country people kind of um terminology, but my whole life growing up, like, you know, and growing up playing music, I completely learned to play by ear, going to jams, you know, having somebody say, oh, yeah. I'll show you this, or you learn from CDs or whatever. So no real proper vocab for most of the things, you know, it's like sure. just, just yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. like this. So this is sort of a slang term, but also very widely understood in our world that if somebody says you want to play the twin part, it just means play the harmony part. So, yeah. you know, even as a little nine-year-old kid playing a tune like old Joe Clark, which is pretty widely known in our world. It's one of the first fiddle tunes you learn. I remember learning the twin part on the mandolin, you know, my teacher showed me how to play the twin part, and I just thought that was the coolest thing to play twin mandolins, you know? So Yeah. yeah. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it has a different connotation than the phrase second fiddle.
1: Yeah, and and funny enough, like I don't know <laughs> if second fiddle, if anybody would ever I mean in, yeah, in, yeah, in the world I grew up in, I don't know if anybody would ever use that that phrase. You know?
0: Yeah, it's only ever used. If it's like I don't want to be second yeah. fiddle. Like, like, like you're. I don't
1: want to play second. Being fiddle. undercast yeah.
0: or something. Yeah, I actually never hear that term. Maybe only because it, it has a maybe neg- that's for the like best. If yeah. Were, <laughs> yeah, it only has a negative connotation now. <laughs> Anyways, the institution that I need more education about the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah. Okay, I get it. I get it. It's like a big deal. Yeah. It is a big deal. It's like, oh, we're playing the Opry or the Opry, the Opry, this, that. There's a lot of history there. I don't quite understand it. There's maybe something to do with Dolly Parton. Maybe there's something to do with like a whole genre of music or several genres of music. And it was at the Ryman and now is its own building. This is true. Give this me. This is true. Give, okay. But, <laughs> uh, okay. And then there's like, they're in the Opry. Like, wait, what does that mean? Like, yeah, they got inaugurated. They got uh, accepted into. You know where I'm I going with you. this? I got you, you. Okay, you played the opera when you're 10 years old. What does that mean? Are, like, are you just like in? The, are you a card carrying member of the opera? Like, I'm not. Is... <laughs> no, I'm not.
1: Um, so yes, the Grand Ole Opry. You know, everybody understands. It's like sort of the one of the big institutions for for. Um, Nashville, it's like if you're if you're a musician, you live here and you play any kind of form of acoustic music, you know, bluegrass, country music, it's probably, you know, nine times out of ten, a dream for whatever artist to get to play there. Yeah. And, of course, just because so many people have played there through the years. And, yes, it, it did start at the Ryman. Well, actually, it was – the Ryman was the home for many years. I think it actually – you know, started somewhere else even before that. But the Ryman was kind of sure. the, the main home here in Nashville for the Ryman for many years. And then they built the Grand Ole Opry House, which is twice as big and not yeah. downtown. But the Ryman, of course, they still moved the Opry back to the Ryman for, like, Two months, I think, in the winter. So they so okay. they do still do some Grand Ole Opry shows there every year, but the main shows are sure. happening at the Grand Ole Opry House these days. But anyway, the original floor of the Ryman, they cut out a piece of wood from from that original stage where, you know, somebody like Hank Williams would have stood back in the day, or Roy Acuff. Yeah. And and now if you go to the Grand Ole Opry House, there's a circle you can stand in. Like if you make your debut the circle, it's like you're getting to sort of stand on the original mm. piece of wood that sure. all these people yeah. would have would have done. So back in the day, the Opry was really like huge because it was on the radio. I mean, there wasn't television back then, so somebody like Dill McCurry, for example, would have grown up hearing Bill Monroe play the Grand Ole Opry and would have had no idea what he looked like, but just heard this guy, you know, coming out of his radio speakers. And for country people, meaning, you know, the Opry reached kind of far and wide, but I mean, especially for I know people (laughs) living in the country, like a lot of my relatives and, and granny and pa and people like that. Like that was a big form of entertainment back in the day, where people yeah. would just, you know, that loved country music, loved bluegrass, could could sit around their radios, and so it, it was mostly big stars. It was, it, I mean, and it still kind of sure. is, I guess, but they're they're definitely more inviting to newcomers these days. But it used to be like if you were a member of the Grand Ole Opry, you played every single weekend there. So like Bill Monroe and the Bluegrass Boys would travel, you know, wherever else to play on a Thursday or Friday night and would hightail it back to Nashville to do their slot on the Opry. So to be a member of the Opry back then was a real commitment. You had to play every weekend. It was the radio show. It was in front of the live audience. And nowadays, to be a member of the Opry, it's not quite like that. You know, people are, like, off doing their tours or whatever. But basically, to be an Opry member means that that you get – it's an invitation that – that you get invited to actually just join this quote-unquote family that's part of the Opry. And so if you're an Opry member, like, take somebody like the Whites. I don't know if you would ever have heard of them. It's actually Ricky Skaggs' wife, Sharon, and her whole family have been members of the Opry for years and years. And, like, they play regularly. They play all the time because they Mm -hmm. don't tour very much. So you get a lot of the Opry legends that still... Play there almost every weekend or every other weekend, but yeah. then you have somebody like Alison Krauss, who's been a member of the Opry, you know, for she was in her twenties, you know, and gotten by twenty one or something crazy like that, and got invited to be a member of the Opry. So it's kind of like I don't know if you think about winning a Grammy, how do you say? Well, what does that really mean? You know what I mean? But like, but sure, like to yeah, be invited yeah. to be a member of the the Grand Ole Opry is sort of like for somebody in our world a pretty prestigious honor and so you know you get your if you walk in at the backstage entrance at the opry over to the left there's all these little you know mailboxes and used to be that fans would send fan mail Mm. you know back in the day to people like dolly parton to the opry because they knew she was a member there so she would could get her mail and so you know you get your little name on a gold plate at the at the Opry when you walk in and it pretty means that pretty much means that you have an open invitation to play the Opry anytime you want to. And it can be a place that, you know, like you take some, take some big country star like Garth Brooks someday when he decides not to tour anymore, he could still come and play the Opry anytime he wanted. It's kind of like a stage that these people can play on. So it would certainly be a dream of mine to get to be, and i remember yeah. one day. But yeah, I mean, I played there when I was 10 and I grew up watching it on television, you know, so to me yeah. it was it was not like I was huddled around the radio listening, but seeing it on television sure. and seeing my heroes like Alison Krauss or, you know, people like that, it certainly felt like how to get to play there would be would be really amazing. And, and to people, you know, back home in Tennessee where I'm from and people like my granny and pa, I mean, it it, it means a lot to those people as well. So yeah, yeah it's just, totally. I think just the history. And so, yeah, so Dolly Parton's a member. It's like, there's there's a small, small group of people who get invited to actually be members, but lots of people that get invited to come play. But to, to become a member is sort of like, you're invited to be a member, and you kind of have an open invitation to say, you know what? I'm going to play the Opry this weekend.
0: Got it. So that, yeah. that's, a, okay. that's
1: a, a short, a long, short answer.
0: <laughs> no, that that makes sense. I just, I, I guess I don't, I mean, we're very, we're pretty, well, we're close enough in age. I don't remember seeing it on TV, but also maybe, I mean, I grew up in Minnesota, so maybe it was less of a thing in the North.
1: Well, it was on CMT for years. And that's when I saw it as a oh, kid. Okay, so CMT. so it would be, yeah, it would yeah, be Opry yeah, Live yeah, yeah, every yeah. Saturday night. And then there would be a rebroadcast on Sunday morning. So as a little kid, I would go jam at <laughs> these local jams on Saturday night. We always missed it because I was off picking with some old timer somewhere, you know, and then on Sunday morning we would get up and we would watch the, the rebroadcast of it. Um, and.
0: So you were doing jams every weekend when you're that oh, age pretty oh, yeah. much? Pretty much oh, a- yeah,
1: definitely. They were just local wow. small jams, you know, with whatever, you know, seven or eight people huddled in a circle playing bluegrass standards. But, yeah, I mean, that's totally how I cut my teeth, just going going to these local jams. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like professional musicians, just people who loved it and, you know, could play. They they knew knew all these tunes and sang, sang all the standards. So there's so much music that I learned that way without ever having somebody directly, like, sit down and show me here's how this tune goes, or sitting down with yeah. CD. It was actually just from, like, going to these jams so many times week after week that you end up hearing, you know, hearing these tunes over and over. Somebody plays Nine Pound Hammer, you know, and they sing the song. Well, after you've heard it, you know, 50 times, you 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 know Nine Pound Hammer. <laughs> it's, it's a familiar song, so... <laughs>
0: That's interesting. There's, I don't know many other genres that are like that. Like I was talking to, I was hanging with Billy Strings and he was telling me the way that he really learned music. He's like, yeah, my dad just took me to festivals and I didn't even know who was playing. I didn't go even to see the shows. I just hung out in the parking lot and Totally. Yeah. It's like, really? He's like, that's just part, that's just like what the scene is. You just go to jam and then eventually it's like, yeah, maybe you're playing on the stage at some point when you yeah decide that or declare that you are well, doing Well because
1: especially in bluegrass you know half the audience or more are actually musicians too you know the people that come yeah. to these festivals like are are every bit you know, into the the playing as they are the listening. So, so yeah, I know people still to this, this day that'll go to some really awesome festivals where great bands are playing and they may watch one or two shows all weekend long because they're too busy just like hanging out at the campground jamming because that's what they live for, you know, just being able to play.
0: I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think like, would that work with other genres? But one of the inherent things about bluegrass is that there isn't drums, Portable, very portable instruments. Yeah, it's a little more portable. I mean, you know, you you see like New Orleans brass bands or something. There's some of that. There's some of the jazz world.
1: And it's acoustic, so, you know, you don't need an amp. You don't, you know, it's all... That probably is a big, big part of it, I'm sure, you know, of it. it. But there's also... And I mean, jazz has that in a way, too, where there is like a shared repertoire where like you you could meet a fellow totally. jazz musician that you've never played with and you both grew up playing all the same tunes, you know? And so yeah, so that's a big part of it too is that, you know, unlike some other genres, you know, excluding jazz because it's more similar, but, like, there's there's just such a clear repertoire of songs that, you know, if you're a mandolin player, you've probably played a tune like Big Mon a thousand times in your life, you know? And if you go and yeah. you... You know, a lot of the the Bill Monroe tunes or Flat & Scruggs, the Stanley Brothers, a lot of that early traditional music. Um, And even a band like the Bluegrass Album Band, which had Tony Rice in it, you know, and Jerry Douglas and people that we still think of as, you know, modern day heroes or whatever. But, but, um, you know, even though Bluegrass isn't really that old of a genre, there's a real like foundation that, that this music became classic, you know, within the people, the circle of the people that love it, that, that there's a real kind of understood repertoire.
0: Is there a generation where that, where that stopped? Like, you know, like uh, in, in jazz music, it's like, I I don't like, there's not a lot of quote unquote standards from the eighties onward. And there's like, well, you know, there's a few and there's like somewhere like the, the young cats know the Roy Hargrove tunes <laughs> and you know, the young cats know some of these John Schofield or whatever songs or Matheny tunes. It's like, okay. Yeah. But, and, and then even like in the Christmas world, there's Christmas standards. Yeah. It's like, you know, every once in a while you get a, a you get a Mariah Carey tune. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a, it's like so hard, but it's, it's just part of the canon. Yeah. Now.
1: Where is the is there a cutoff in the bluegrass yeah, world? Yeah, that's interesting because you know, hmm, I I grew up you know cutting my teeth on Alison Krauss and Nickel Creek and Tony Rice and and there's certainly a lot of those Tony Rice songs or occasionally you'll hear like an Alison Krauss Union Station song pop up in a jam and and you yeah. know people know it but so you know that takes you even to the 80s and the 90s you know but yeah in the last 20 years if I think about Things that people would really think of as standards, it doesn't seem like it very much. Yeah, I think it might be like kind of like you said. If you know, I grew up learning all my Chris Thiele licks or whatever or songs from from a lot of those records, and and occasionally somebody of sure. my generation will also have done the same thing, and it'd be like, oh, fun, let's play that. But I wouldn't think of it as as stuff that just every every single player would know. You know, uh, yeah. the stuff I grew up cutting my teeth on is pretty much the stuff. Chris grew up cutting his teeth on too you know even though he's a little older than I am so I think and the the same thing that 10 year olds are sort of still out there learning right now so a lot of it has has kind of carried carried over in the same way
0: all right all right at the beginning of the episode you heard me talking about distro kid I'm gonna mention him again because it's worth it to me I really think that if you are an artist, you should have an easy and comfortable way to upload your music and get it distributed to all the streaming platforms like Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, YouTube Music, blah, 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 all that stuff. You should have a way to do that. DistroKid makes it really easy. And also, they don't take a percentage. They do not take a percentage of your royalties. That's amazing. All they do is charge a yearly fee. I love it. I use it. If you're making your own music and want to put it out there in the world, I would suggest using DistroKid. That's that. Easy as that. Let's get back to the interview. Okay, so you grew up learning by rote, you know, by ear, by just jamming, picking things up by somebody showing you, or whatever, not by written music. Then you get a presidential scholarship to go to Berkeley. They they create a degree program and you are i think they did it for Julian Lodge, right they like made some special program and then you were the second or were you the was it you and then Julian Lage well, was, the f- was I was it the Julian first to actually you?
1: finish it but the idea was born from from Julian yeah from from him being a student there and them trying to figure out sort of an alternate alternative route that someone could take if the idea of a conventional degree program didn't make as much sense in terms of opportunities that an artist might have to go do other things while, while being a college student all at the same time. So, yeah. So yeah, this artist diploma program um, was something that they, they brought up and started to do with Julian. And then it, like, I guess he didn't finish it at the time. And then when I came in my scholarship that you're referring to was for a four year degree program, um, yeah. and once I got there in the first semester of school, I just missed a lot of school. And this was, you know, something they knew coming into it when they offered me the scholarship. I was like, I'd love to take this, but I have sort of th- these things that I'm already committed to. And and it's going to be kind of hard for me to just be in Boston the whole time. And so they said, come, we'll make it yeah. work. And it it was a crazy first semester. And I think they were even surprised that I wanted to come back for the second semester. But I was like, are you kidding me? I have to come back. I didn't even really get to try it out, (laughs) you know. And so it was around that time that they said, well, this is something we've been kind of toying with the idea of doing. And we started talking to Julian about doing when he was a student, which, you know, was probably, I don't know eight or nine years before I came along or whatever. Uh, And, um, and so they're like, but you know, we've never really circled back around to it, but maybe this would be a good opportunity to try something like this with you. And so it was the idea of kind of creating a program called an artist diploma program that would be a little bit more um, flexible and what you would want to get out of your, your college experience so not just not sure. just choosing production not just choosing songwriting or business and going into the standard curriculum but instead saying yeah what if this is a 2 year program instead of a 4 year program and you kind of pick and choose your classes based on what you want to get out of these 2 years so so every semester i would just yeah. get together with um you know the the folks who were part of the string department there and and the college and we would kind of I would say these are the things I'd really love to do. I'd love to not just have to de-mandolin my principal instrument, but I would love to take a vocal lesson. I'd never had a vocal lesson in my life before, so I was like, I'd love to do that, you know, yeah. and, and get some experience there. I'd love to take a business class. I'd love to spend a little time in the studio. These are all things I'm interested in, and had I had to have been restricted to one path, it might have been a little harder to, you know, sure. to be able to to kind of dabble in all these things. Um, and then they would say, well, here's what we think would be good. We'd really love you to have this, you know, music history class. Mm-hmm. So you could learn about this and this and I'd go, cool, you know? And so we sort of collaborated on figuring out what my schedule looked like. So it was a a different kind of Berkeley experience than most, I suppose. But um, but one that was, was really, I felt fortunate to have. Did you feel
0: like your upbringing and the way that you learn music enhanced your experience at Berkeley because it was, well, I guess I'm just curious, was it super different? I guess most people think that when you go to college, there is this specific way that you go through music theory, a specific way that you learn things, and your upbringing might have been different than a lot of people's that were there?
1: Yeah. I mean, I did not grow up thinking about music theory at all. I mean, I just yeah. didn't think about it. I mean, of course, I'm like, I know what this chord is, or I understand major scales, or I, you know, it's like you learn through doing. Yeah, yeah. It's not like I didn't understand it. But as far as the communication or thinking about it, like, sometimes I think there's as much of a mindset about some of it than anything else. You you have like some of my, sure. my heroes, you know. And some some of the, like, take a player like Adam Steffi, you know, who was one of the most influential mandolin players to me growing up. He played with Allison Cross Union Station for years and still out there. Great, great player. Somebody like that would have totally just grew up playing in bluegrass, learning by doing. You know, I highly doubt somebody like Adam would ever, you know, really be thinking too much about the technical or theory-based side of playing um and that's very mm-hmm. much how I grew up playing. It's like I do a little bit more now just because my path has sort of taken me there. But growing up and and so by the time I went to Berkeley, I had none of that. I mean, I just that wasn't wasn't my world. So it was a little intimidating. I felt really kind of out of place because I felt like I was surrounded by all these players who you know, were so talented in that regard and had all had all this experience, but but, you know, sure. but at the same time, the American Roots program was just getting started there, which uh, was a great mm-hmm. time for me to be there because they were starting to welcome more and more roots players, bluegrass players. So there definitely were some like-minded people there yeah. that I got to be around that that we understood each other, you know, that also was like, I can't totally. read music at all. But then there's people who could like, you know, ace any level of music you put in front of them it could be the hardest thing and they could sit there and play it but it had never tried to improvise before so you know i think at that point especially it felt like a really great time to be there because there was a mixture of of people and and it felt very um much like the school was welcoming both sides it wasn't like this is you know the box you have to be in if you're here it's like no we get it you're really strong in this area but have no experience in this area. And that's why you're here so that we can try to add on to, you know, put a few more tools in your your tool belt here. And then the same thing with other people who maybe had all the, the musical knowledge and theory and kind of mental side of it, but maybe hadn't had an opportunity to ever stand on a stage or haven't really had an opportunity to apply it by playing with other musicians, you know, all the things that maybe I had got to do. But had never had the experience in the more formal setting of just being in a classroom, so it was intimidating for sure. But I also, at the same time, always felt very welcomed by the school and and my fellow classmates.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: that's yeah, great. Were you always writing
0: songs? Were you writing songs up until that point, or did that feel? Was that kind of the, the time when you started? diving into that. I
1: had always written tunes, you know, um, and I had written lyrics as well, but it was probably, yeah, probably around the time. And I don't know if it was a direct result of being at Berkeley as far as the school, but, but just that time in life of sort of like coming out of your young teenage years, you know, rounding that corner into early adulthood where, where I just kind of felt like even the, you know, I always say going to Berkeley for me, as much as anything, the school was amazing, and it was amazing to be put in that situation that I feel like anytime you're put in a situation where you're kind of out of your element and it's not what you're used to, forces us to grow because there's moments of it yeah. feeling uncomfortable or you kind of questioning whether you're good enough to be somewhere, like all those things. um, You know, really, I think ultimately help us grow. Um And, and I, I, I know all that to be true, but I also think that like, you know, just the experience of moving. I mean, the town I grew up in Tennessee literally has nine hundred people and no red light. I mean, it's very rural, you know, backwoods to yeah. the sea. And so moving from a place like that to right there, you know, in the main building at Berkeley, right off Mass Ave, you know, it just was was quite the change of pace. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Wow, I couldn't imagine what that what that pace change must have felt like.
1: Yeah, and it That's- was I
0: think Nashville's a good city for you. It
1: though. is. It's sort of the perfect like you in between. To, you can kind of get both. Yeah, it's yeah. the perfect in between. I mean, I always knew as much as I loved growing up in a small town, and I still, my parents are still there. It's still, you know, very dear to my heart. But you know, it's an hour from the interstate, and <laughs> two hours from Nashville, or you know, the closest airport's two hours away. So, so for for what I'm doing now, it really wouldn't make sense for me to live there. Um, but so I always kind of knew. I always knew I wanted to live in Nashville, you know, and that that this would be where I would call home. Um, But yeah, it's kind of funny going to Berkeley and and moving to Boston, having that life experience made Nashville feel like, cool, this is totally the spot for me. (laughs) Whereas whereas Nashville might have felt like its own kind of bizarre thing to actually just move and and leave, you know, had that been the first stop. But I'm really glad I got to kind of push even further and just move that far from home and be in a city that big and you know that kind of environment for a while i think that that there's a lot of a lot of growth to be had in a young person's life from just that kind of change of environment you know
0: yeah absolutely now in nashville it's a big songwriter town and correct me if i'm wrong you own your own publishing correct? i do yeah and many of us do and like we are under the name of a publishing company or something just cuz like you have to have a publishing company name yeah. but you could just kind of say i have a publishing company and it's now called this and you just declare it and now, now it is so. you're a publisher <laughs> yes it's one of the, it's kind of weird but i think that because of that it's kind of elusive so a lot of young songwriters a lot of young artists and i imagine people listening to this podcast are wondering what that sort of songwriter thing is what it means to own your own songs what it means to own your publishing and what it means to you know own your own masters and that sort of thing so you own your own publishing are you are you with a label now remind me
1: i'm not no i, I i'm not currently i was my entire career in my last record um, fulfilled my contract with Rounder Records, yeah. so I signed with them when I was thirteen. Put out my first record at about fifteen, and then yeah. it was like maybe nineteen, twenty, something. You know, that like like through my twenties, I put yeah. out a couple couple records, and so I had a four four album deal, and and did my released my last record in uh, February of twenty twenty. So yeah. That's I'm, 25. i sort of the enjoying trips the uh, free the sun. agent life for a minute. Yeah, 25 trips. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So for for people that don't know, can you explain what it means? I, I mean, I, I know it might just be a really simple answer coming from you. But what it means to own your own songs, own your own publishing, and your own masters, and what those scenarios might look like for other people that you work with as well in Nashville.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, simply put, like what you were saying about you just kind of – <laughs> you know, at some point create your own publishing name yeah. and, and, you know, you register through say ASCAP or BMI or one of these, one of these things. Um, When I was getting ready to do my first record, um, there was a guy from ASCAP who kind of, I don't even remember how I met him or he befriended us somehow. I remember he came to the studio and helped me set up my publishing company, you know, I'm yeah. like whatever, fourteen <laughs> yeah. or whatever, tried to try to um, you know, get this set up. So we we deemed it a name and then had it all set up. And then basically any of the songs that I wrote would be um registered through that title. So the songwriter, Sierra Hold, the publisher the publisher, in my case, very 14 year old inside joke, tugboat sis music, which, you know, is still my current publishing tugboat sis music. Okay. So, so I've got these two elements. And so thankfully with my contract, and it's not always like that, like, especially with, with some of the major labels, you know, that mm-hmm. want a piece of the publishing and all that kind of stuff. I totally was able to retain ownership of, of that part of it, even when I signed my contract with, with rounder. So, so basically any, royalties that have been made off of songs that I've written as a solo artist, not not co-writes, but just something that I've written just myself. I get 100% mm-hmm. of the publishing, 100% of the artist share, which are two separate shares. Um, and so then you might have a co-writer situation. I do a lot of co-writing here in Nashville. And so say a song off my la- last album, if I had a co-writer, then you get 50% of the writer share and 50% of the publishing if you choose to to set it up that way, which mm-hmm. I always have with my co-writes yeah. where they can have half the publishing. Now, in their case, say that I write with somebody that doesn't have full ownership of their publishing. They work with a publishing company that, you know, gets a percentage then of their percentage they might be having to give a piece of that to somebody else. Mm. But in my case, you know, it just, it, it'll be split that way. So yeah. I do have, um, like, I signed with Reach Music Publishing um, last year. So they are administrators for my entire catalog and they pitched a sync and, you know, of course would get a, a percentage of anything like that. But um, my deal with them is just for them to basically. You know, do all my administrative work, make sure that royalties are being properly collected, you know, where they are. But, um, but my deal with them isn't like being signed to a publishing company. Now, there are plenty of writers I know here in Nashville that their dream is to be signed by a publishing company because, for me, I've always been a writer that I've just written for myself, for my own projects. You know, I'm, I'm more and more interested in just because I'm writing a lot and I'm collaborating, writing with a lot of people. You know, I would love to be somebody that could also... Have a cut on somebody else's record, I mean, Dolly mm. Parton is a beautiful example of somebody that you know just writes all the time and and we think of her as an artist first and foremost, but you know she's a songwriter that loads of other people have cut her songs both both yeah. songs that she's recorded and and hasn't recorded you know so so i'm I'm into the idea of that, but at the same time, the advantage you get from having a publishing company that that you actually sign with that they do get a percentage of anything that somebody else records, but they're pitching your songs to other artists. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's writers here in Nashville that they go to an office in Music Row three days a week and they have a publisher that's scheduling their co-writes for them and And they'll say, okay, um, how about you write with so-and-so on this day? Cool, put it on the calendar. And so they go in and they might meet up at 10 in the morning and write all day and they're getting paid a salary to do that. So in, essentially they get paid an um, advance or a salary. Yeah, And and a lot of songwriters can make their living that way by being paid by a publishing company to essentially write songs all day. And they may get a cut and they may not, but really one cut would be, in a lot of cases, all it would take for the publisher to make all their money back and you yeah. know, all that. And so, for people that
0: don't know what that means, getting a cut... Means not like getting a piece of the pie. Oh, it means oh right, like right, right. Getting having the song, the recorded. The song get recorded exactly yeah. and, and, and it, released.
1: Yeah. yeah, and say somebody gets a song on country radio and they get a number one hit out of it. Well, you know, there's a lot of money to be made as a songwriter there, and so then the publishers, you know, usually I think the the advances that they've paid out or the salaries like that goes against it. You know what yeah. I mean? So so essentially, you're kind of getting paid in advance. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then if there's anything over that, then you'd make your, you know, whatever their deal is. So mm. you know, and I'm sure everybody has different deals. But so I've never done anything like that. But it also means that I don't have anybody pitching my songs to other people. But sure. I'm also yeah, yeah, yeah. that's not, you know, what I'm trying to do, but that is the way it works a lot here in, in Nashville for sure.
0: I, I've had different phases of of my idea of what I want to do with publishing. Cause right now, like I don't make a ton on my publishing. Mm-hmm. Like I make a, it's fine. Like it, you know, whatever. Yeah. But I, also, I'm not, I'm not aiming at that spot on the dartboard. Sure. You know? But I, I know some people. There's like publishing is everything. I'm like, really? Like uh, for where I'm at, it's just it's such a, it's it doesn't make up a such a large percentage of my monthly or yearly income. But I do have friends where, yeah, like the, and again, for you and I, we are doing our artist careers and we're focusing on making albums and doing the other stuff that it takes to be an artist and go on tour and all of that stuff. But I think for some people that are aiming at that thing on the dartboard, it does seem like it's, it's an interesting career path that in a lot, it's just so much different. Although to some people it might be the same. It's like, oh, somebody's writing songs. It's, it's actually a very different thing. And there's very different techniques once you get into that sort of writing thing. And when you get into the, I don't know, like, uh, I, okay, so I have a friend who, he's a, a good writer. He's never had a smash hit, but he got an offer by a publishing company. They said, okay, here's a $30,000 advance. And this year, we just need you to write 10 songs or uh, 10 songs that get recorded. You know, by whoever. So he, you know, writes a hundred songs, and then you know, one of them was a a co-write, so it counts as a half song getting recorded or whatever. It is recouping. But then, yeah, they're they're constantly pitching the songs for other things, and they, you know, if they're gonna put up that much advance, they're gonna imagine that they're gonna make three times that off of that person. You would think so. Mm -hmm. It's a different hustle. It's a different grind
1: yeah but I'm always I think, curious for I think people what that- you're saying about just what you're aiming for. It really depends like that's never been something I'm aiming for either, so yeah. which is the main reason that I think I've just tried to retain ownership of it because I feel yeah. like, yeah, whatever piece of the pie is there for me, just might as well stay that way, you know, but yes, perhaps if that was something you're trying to dedicate your whole thing to, then maybe to give up a percentage for the sake of a much larger pie, (laughs) you know, would make sense. But for me, I have like that's never been the main focus. Now, you know, you mentioned like owning your masters, like that's a new conversation for me right now, because, Mm -hmm. you know, this is the first time in my career that I've been in a position to really, you know, think about that. And I think there is a much larger piece of the pie to be had there as an artist, you know.
0: And for those listening that don't understand that side of it, well, wh- what we're talking about is in any any piece of recorded music, there are several different assets, pieces of intellectual property, right? So there's the master recording itself. It's actually the the, the copyright for the audio. And then there's the songwriting, which we were just talking about. And <laughs> what's confusing is that within the songwriting, it's split up halfway between the publishing and the songwriting. Like, even though, like, let's say Sierra just writes a song by herself in the room she actually only owns half of that song. It has to be owned 50% by a publishing company. So like we're saying, she just comes up with her own publishing name. Tugboat Sis now owns half of <laughs> half of the song. And, Which is still
1: know, just me, turns out. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a so funny it, thing, but yeah. It is sometimes it confusing.
0: Whatever, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. So the songwriting portion... Even though you were just in your room for an hour writing a song, you own half of it, and now you as the publisher own the other half. Yes. Once it gets recorded, then that master recording has copyright associated to it. And, you know, like in the case of, um, I don't know, like if I were to record a Taylor Swift song, I would own the master, but Taylor would own the publishing and the songwriting still. You know, so, or whatever. I don't know why I thought of her first, but...
1: She's got a lot of songs, man. She's got a lot of she songs. She has a lot
0: of songs. She's an amazing writer. <laughs> she is, but, yeah. Okay, so for you owning your masters, is that something, so do you feel like, is that something that you're just like, I want to do this now? Or are you, I don't know. And, you, and I don't, and no matter how you answer this question, I guess it's going to reflect on how your relationship turned out with, or how like the business side turned out with Rounder. And I've heard great things about Rounder. So don't, yeah. don't feel like you need to say anything about that. It's just like the modern day indie musician has opportunities to own all their stuff. I
1: just, yeah, I think that we live in a much different time now for getting yeah. our music out there than we did when I was 13. And, yeah. and, you know, having a label felt like the only way to really fully get your music out there. Totally. And, I'm, and I'm so grateful. I mean, Rounder was the label I wanted to be on. As a yeah. as a kid, it was the album all my or it was the the label that all my heroes had put albums out on, you know. But even the modern day label is so different than it once was because records don't sell like they once did, yeah. you know. <laughs> and streaming is now part of it, which wasn't when I was a kid; it wasn't a thing, mm. you know. Yeah. So there's so many different things that an artist has to consider when thinking about signing with a label now. For me, I think it was just one of those things where I took my time to make records and now that I did all those I'm a pretty good ways into my career now and it's it's sort of like a good opportunity for me to just stop and think about okay, well now I've had the experience of making these records. I kind of understand how a lot of this works. I've got, you know, at least far enough along in my career to to be surrounded by a lot of folks that I know can help me with these kind of things and, and figure out, you know, um, how to get my music out there. I mean, it, it's just we have so much at our fingertips now Yeah, that to be an independent artist is much more realistic feeling than than maybe it once was. Sure. And in terms of album sales, you know, there's less money to be made to start with in selling albums like physical albums I'm talking about physical albums then then there was you know 10 even 10 15 years ago then put in the equation of somebody else you know getting a cut of of whatever there is to be had so so yeah i mean the idea of being independent certainly sounds really appealing to me right now and i feel kind of excited to be in the position to kind of do whatever I want and, yeah. and sort of be my own woman about it all. That That's very exciting to me to be in that position. Um, you know, even though I am grateful, so grateful I got to be on Rounder for all those totally. years. But I'm I'm certainly not chomping at the bit to sign a contract with anybody right now. However, <laughs> However, I want to have the biggest career I can have. I want to reach the most people I can reach. And if I felt like there was a label that could do a lot of things for me that I wouldn't be able to do as an independent artist. Then that's a conversation I would have tomorrow. You know what I mean? I'm not yeah. like I'm not so just set in stone that it has to be, you know, I'm I'm independent now. Yeah. <laughs> but I think there's there's a real um kind of a, a a lift to the spirits to feel like, "Huh, there's so many options one yeah, can take yeah. right <laughs> now." And that's kind of an exciting place to be in. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so, you can literally release a song next week, whatever song you want, however you want. However, I and nobody's want. Nobody's going to tell you exactly.
1: I don't have to. I don't have to ask anyone, and I don't have to, yeah. you know, get in line with with other, you know, behind other projects or or you know, figure out, um, you know, what the the strategy is going to be with somebody else. I can definitely just be in charge of of putting the people, creating the team that I want mm-hmm. specifically to help me from song to song release or album to album release like any of those things you know to just kind of be in that position feels exciting to me um and yeah I mean and even in terms of of thinking about you know and maybe you could speak to this because you're you're independent as well but but in terms of the financial opportunity in terms of streaming or uh, even sound exchange things like that. I mean, yeah. to be an independent artist, you're also getting that label share, which you know, mm-hmm. as a, from a business standpoint, is appealing. You know, if yeah. if you're able to do independent as much as uh, if you're able to accomplish as much as an independent artist as you would be with a label, then yeah, it feels like the natural decision to financially and and business-wise, you know, be independent yeah. and, and retain ownership of all that as opposed to giving it to somebody else. But again, I say if a label can take you to new heights and and put you in front of an audience that you've not been in front of yet and all those kind of things, yeah. um, then there's a lot of reasons it makes sense. But I'm just kind of in a place of weighing those options and um, figuring out what my next step is. But I'm enjoying that place right now yeah
0: (laughs) yeah being an independent artist can be so empowering but i think the and it is it's, it's incredible but there are certain things where it's like sometimes i ask myself how dare i think that i can do as much as for my career on my own as an entire label that might be a subsidiary of another label that has all this muscle behind it and all these people that dedicate their lives to these specific areas, experts in X, Y, Z, and beyond. How dare I think that I can do those jobs better than those people. Then I think to myself, well, yeah, none of those people will care about me or my project as much as I do.
1: I think that's the main, the main conversation that you have to have is yeah. is the team going to be so ecstatic and so dedicated that that they're going to be able to do way more than you, yourself, or your, yeah. you know, team of of people you've surrounded yourself with can help you achieve. And, you know, that's a question I think we all have to ask. Um, yeah. Because it is true. I think there's, there's a lot of label situations where people are understaffed or they've already got, you know— they might have 10 projects in the shoot and you really want your record to come out at a certain time and they know they can't give it the the muscle power that it needs because yeah. they're they're occupied with other projects or, you know, I've had that happen even, even in the past where I've like had to wait a year for a record to come out because I wanted it to come out at a time where I knew they could, you know, they may love the record, yeah. but if they've got other commitments, like, you know, sort of like get in line and... And so in a lot of cases, that was smart, I think, to wait to put it out yeah, because you, sure. you don't want to just put it out and not be able to have, you know, people, whether they like it or not, <laughs> whether they're excited about the record or not. You know, they got to have the kind of scheduling in place to really do their their job around it. So, yeah, sometimes that means you, you're you fighting against other things that are coming out and and all that. Um, so that's also part of the conversation, I guess. But yeah. And for each artist,
0: every artist. Brings different things to the table and brings different uh, levels of needing artistic control or business control.
1: Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. thinking,
0: you know, of myself in that. You know, like I think some of us, it would be harder to be on a label just mentally, mm-hmm. like than others.
1: Well, we'll see. I don't know what it's like to not be on a label until recently you know what i mean it's like my whole career has been on one so i think for me it's i'm sort of in the opposite place where i'm kind of like hmm, is this what it's like <laughs> you know
0: oh but you're so capable you're smart you're good at what you do and you have people around you that care and you've seen enough things happen and you have enough people that you could ask like you will crush at least a couple projects independently and you might then decide Eh, you know what, I didn't like doing all that work. I actually liked it when I just did, you know.
1: I think that's the thing. It's nice to have the choice right now yeah. to go, hmm, I could put out some singles or I can put out a whole album if I want to on my own. And it doesn't mean I'll always want to do it that way. But it's nice to think about, you know, having a few things that I have retained ownership of completely and mm-hmm. and put out into the world, you know, instead of feeling like everything has sort of gone through that that process of, working with the label.
0: You know, I, okay, so this maybe is getting, I uh, feel as comfortable as you want to talk about this. I, when I grew up, I used to think, I my number one thing, I would love to put out an album on ECM or Blue Note. Those were like my two labels that I loved. But then as when I started doing my thing, I realized, well, actually, if I put out an album on ECM, people are going to immediately associate me with, a bunch of different things. If I put an album out on Blue Note, people are immediately going to associate me with a certain certain type of sound, a certain type of thing, a certain type of show, a certain type of, I hate using the word glass ceiling, but a certain like thing that is not, okay, like in the same way that people that associate themselves with the jam band world, There are all of a sudden, like, you're now in this thing. So if I put out an album with a a jazz label, it all of a sudden gets categorized as this thing, and it's kind of inherently certain people in the industry, certain people in the general public will just box it into this thing mostly unfairly in a lot of – well, not mostly. A lot of times unfairly. Mm -hmm. And then in the jam band world – People associate that, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, you just do this so you're all these other things are off the table because you're a jam band or whatever. (laughs) I would imagine to some degree, the majority of the albums that I know from Rounder, some uh, amazing albums, have a certain thing, and I might think something in my head about what to expect from that album or what to expect from those artists, which is, I think, actually the good thing about some of those labels, because a lot of people just know what to expect. Sometimes it's like, oh, if this comes out on Rounder, they curate their music, they curate their artist list, and I know what to expect, I should buy that. But you might have, at this point, another idea of what that is. And when I hear 25 Trips, your album, your most recent album, it actually isn't necessarily what I would think of as... uh, that place on the dartboard that I would aim when I want to listen to a rounder album for yeah. better or worse. Again, yeah, it's sure. not a bad thing. It's not a good sure, thing. It's totally. just like we have our own in the same way that when I listen to Jose James, it's not what I would expect out of a blue note album or yeah, whatever. So sure. I don't know. Like what is, is? what is your direct, like are you going more bluegrass now? Are you going more songwriting songs like 25 trips? What's your,
1: well, Wouldn't. you know, you and I had a, a big conversation about this over tacos yeah. that night. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I've thought so much about it and, and I'm actually going to the studio on, on Thursday and Friday this week yeah. and recording. Um, Amazing. Um, you know, I've done some recording at home, but this will be really the first time I've been back in the stu- like studio studio since, yeah. since a lot of the 25 Trips record was made. And, you know, part of me is still trying to figure that out, um, but... I think I'm going to go in with the the band that I'm touring with right now, which I'm excited about. Um, and I really want to record some music that feels fun, you know? And, and there's something to be said about, like, so so much of the bluegrass I grew up playing is just fun, joyful music. You know, if yeah. you play, like, a blazing mandolin tune and, you know, the fiddle just takes a roaring solo, like, there's something so exciting about that, you know? And it's yeah, like, totally. I... I I connect with that as a musician because that's the world I grew up in and I love. But um, even though like, I don't think that the show I'm, I'm doing now, it's like, you know, it's not a bluegrass show at all. It's and mm-hmm. and hasn't been for many years. And, and, and I wouldn't consider 25 trips a bluegrass record, but there's still that influence and that love that I want to lean into, you know, I want to lean into it, but I think in sort of a more modern way, but then I do have this singer songwriter, part of myself that I really, you know, don't want to ignore either. I want to be able to sort of like put that out there. So I'm kind of like trying to figure out how to marry all these worlds, you know, because yeah. as the singer songwriter part of me really kind of lends, uh, leans in a little bit more seriously, <laughs> you know, in terms of, of the the somber direction of the music sometimes and the lyrical content. Um, but trying to find ways to like not lose that that genuine part of my songwriting and still feel like I can I can kind of marry that with something that also leans into I guess the more, you know, I hate to use the word virtuosic, but bluegrass can be a very virtuosic type of music yeah. and, and very, Absolutely. you know, playing forward kind of thing. So, you know, and I, I know we talked about this a little bit that night, yeah. just trying to figure out how to like how to like lean into that and, and no, not, not necessarily more bluegrass. If anything, it's probably, it's probably less bluegrass with having the the element of drums and things like that, even with my live show. But I think there's, there's undeniably more of the bluegrass influence by leaning mm-hmm. into the playing part of it a little yeah. bit more, if that makes sense. So like, just, I don't know. It's like, I'm, I'm sort of, uh I'm sort of like at a place where I just want to You know, I'm thinking about making a record more now in terms of what I would want a live show to feel like more than Mm. I ever have. I don't, I've never thought about making a record and thinking about playing the music live. I've kind of just always went, oh, it'll, 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 it'll present itself the way it needs to. When, yeah. when the live thing comes around. And this time it feels kind of exciting to go, what is this song going to feel like when I stand on a stage and play it?
0: Yeah. And is
1: that going to translate to the audience in the way that's going to make me feel like I'm presenting w- what part of myself that I want to in a live setting? So that's kind of been a different conversation I've been having with myself <laughs> in terms of thinking about, you know, what's next for me, at least in this moment.
0: That makes so much sense. I love hearing that you're doing that, especially because, I mean, people listening don't know, but we had a a pretty lengthy conversation about all this. Yeah. You know, me thinking about what's my direction, what direction are you going in? I think we're both kind of caught in this trying to figure out what people expect from us, what we really bring to the table that's unique for you, you as an individual, myself as an individual. For anybody who's listening, what they bring to the table as an individual, and then what people want from us, mm-hmm. you know, and most of the time, those two things are correlated. Like <laughs> for me, I'm a Sierra Hall fan. Sierra is one of the best mandolin players to ever live. By the time you die, could arguably be the best mandolin player to ever live. You would never say that about yourself. I oh, know. Lord, I know you too well. That's a and strong
1: I know, statement. I appreciate it.
0: <laughs> but. <laughs> So then what does that mean? When I think of you, I think of you that, like that's the first thing that my software opens up. Like that's the first tab <laughs> that opens up, you know? And so what do I want? What do I want from Sierra? Well, it probably is associated with that where some people, sure. it's like, oh, Corey is the rhythm guitar, high energy guy. That's what they want from me. Okay, that's cool. But like, sometimes I don't want to do that. And I want to do this other step or sometimes I have an artistic vision for this. You might have an artistic vision for something to still at least be able to, to trigger that same part of that person's software when they open up our albums, Yeah, but also Mm -hmm. fulfill what it is that we want to say artistically, I think is the challenge.
1: Right. Cause I don't think any of us want to be thought of as a, a one trick pony, you know what I mean? Like, like when you, when you kind of dedicate your life to being an artist, you know, it's like, there's always going to be the sort of like things that people think of, you know, that way. Yeah. And that our career is mostly built upon, which is cool, you know. But, it, it, like, for me, I do love I do love writing songs. I do love, you know, being able to have that be a part of what I do. Like, I wouldn't feel fulfilled if I was only just, like, shredding Manlin tunes and, and making records yeah. that were nothing but that all the time, you know. Um, but I do want that to be a part of what I do, of course. And so, like you said, how to sort of, like... Marry those things to make make me feel fulfilled as that singer-songwriter part of myself. And it, it doesn't mean that I have to, you know, shred mandolin on every track or whatever. But just, like, not losing sight of of that core foundation that we have as an artist or the thing that sort of, as you were saying, makes us unique to who we are. Like, that is important. And I think sometimes we can run from the very obvious... <laughs>
0: Yeah, totally. You know what
1: I mean? And sometimes I think that I probably do that a little bit because I'm like, yeah, but because that's the obvious thing, I feel like I like shouldn't do the obvious yeah. thing. And then you're like, but maybe that's dumb, you know? Yeah. <laughs> i just being dumb. And then sometimes doing the obvious thing is actually a lot easier than the pressure of feeling like, you know, you've got to like recreate your whole thing because people yeah. know you can do that, so why would they want to hear you do that? It's like, well, no, that's the thing that people are excited that you do too. So like to not, <laughs> to not yeah, yeah. feel like that has no value. Cause I think it does have value and, and it's hard to, to see that sometimes as silly as that sounds.
0: Yeah. And I think for you, my outside looking in so many people do associate and rightfully. So the mandolin with bluegrass music. So, you know, You might be on the the five to 20 year journey of being that one of the people to like, all right, the mandolin is now, it's open season, all genres, you know? I mean, and people have done this for, you know, the last, I guess, probably 10 years. Yeah. Maybe Chris being one of the leading people. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's been a a bunch of people doing things on the mandolin that have not been just bluegrass, but I, I feel like, I don't know, the guitar has had that as well and and- rhythm guitar has had that sort of thing. So I think yeah. the more the earlier you just start doing shredding mandolin on things that aren't bluegrass, the the faster it's just going to be like cool, that's just like something people do now.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, it's like, just widely
1: accepted. <laughs> yeah.
0: Like where did they, for 10 years from now people are like, where's the mandolin solo?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like on a pop song, like on a top 40 song. People be like, where's the mandolin solo? In the same way where today it's like, where's the synth?
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Where's the tribolo?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Well, Sierra, this has been really fun. For people listening that don't know, we're going on tour together in the winter.
1: Yeah, we are. That's going to be fun. Oh, I'm stoked. It's going to be so fun.
0: I'm super excited about that. And I'm ex- I'm excited to see what band you bring and whatever you do it's going to be awesome and it'll be fun to play music together every night and yeah that's going to be that's going to be great. We're going to have that.
1: fun. We're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm excited. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, what's next for you now? What's in the what's in the immediate future? What can people look out for that you're doing?
1: Well, so I'm 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 getting back in the studio trying to, you know, squeeze that in in the ever crazy world of of getting back to touring um going out on the road course with Bela next month um doing a few shows with Sturgill Simpson as well as part of the the Willie Nelson tour yeah. and uh then my band is touring in all of October and November here in the States and um yeah I've just launched a new ArtistWorks course which is an online mandolin school so I recorded over well over a hundred videos teaching everything wow. from beginner mandolin all the way to advanced. And so it's a pretty really? it's a pretty cool thing in that Artistworks has this pretty unique format of where so like Brian Sutton for for instance is a guitar teacher there. And yeah. so and he's been doing it for like ten years, you know. But my course just launched last week, so it's very fresh. But um, so basically if if people sign up, you could have never held a mandolin before. And you'll learn everything about, you know, the nuts and bolts of the instrument to holding it, posture, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Or if you're somebody that's played a long time, you know, there's still a lot of stuff you can kind of deep dive into there from some of the standard bluegrass repertoire to some of my original music. And you get backing tracks and tabs. And But but the, the main thing that makes it kind of unique with ArtistWorks is that once people subscribe they can actually submit a video to me as they're working on things and I Mm. will do a video response to their progress. And then it's sort of a bit like a masterclass where all the subscribers get to see all the student videos. And so it's kind of Uh. this fun ongoing process. So it's like the school, the school lives there and we'll continue to add content as time goes along, but you can, you know, work through it at your own pace and never do the video exchange or get in there on the video exchange. If you're really excited about something that you're working on and want to share it and, and I can uh, give feedback. So yeah, that's, that's a new, new thing that I've been just, just getting going on. So I'm excited about that. So if anybody wants to play mandolin.
0: (laughs) So is that something where people pay a a one-time or is it a subscription-based?
1: It's a subscription-based, yeah. So you can do, I think it's three months, six months, or a year. There's people that have been subscribers for years on some of the other schools that's just ongoing because the community kind of becomes like, you know, all the the fellow mandolin players kind of get together and they can talk to each other on there and all that kind of stuff too. So it's kind of like an online community that's an ongoing thing, but it can be something that you're just like, you know, I'm going to subscribe to for a year and get what I get out of it. Or, you know, you continue to, to subscribe and you can submit miscellaneous videos. It doesn't just have to be what's, um, you know, covered in the course, but there's, there's a lot of content there, you know, yeah, hundred plus videos and hours and hours and stuff for people to, to dig into.
0: That's awesome. You know what? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take your class. I got a mandolin at home. I have a mandola. Actually, the mandola works better for me cuz yeah, its uh, frets are a little closer to a guitar size. It's easier to play for me.
1: Well, it's very fresh. You can get on there and catch all my mistakes and let me know, you know, <laughs> let me know what what I missed.
0: <laughs> no, I'm sure you crushed
1: it. Oh, it's yeah, it's it's exciting. Um definitely a a new avenue of of something that, you know, that is like now sort of part of my ongoing musical world so
0: amazing it's, it's fun yeah all right everybody check out artist works <laughs> cool well sierra thanks so much for being with us and i will see you sometime
1: soon man can't wait so great to chat with you thanks for having me on the podcast and uh, i love all your interviews and it's a it's a fun listen so i'm honored to be part of it
0: thanks there you have it sierra's awesome she's so cool Really nice person, really fun to talk to, really fun to hang with and play music with. Absolutely incredible A list musician. If you're not familiar with her music, go check it out wherever you listen to music and come check us out on tour. Like I said earlier in the podcast, she's coming out on tour with me. It's going to be amazing. We're touring around the US. I have my Cory and the Wong Notes band. She's coming out. Antoine Stanley is going to be there. It's going to be insane. So much fun. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us today. I really appreciate it. Smash that subscribe if you haven't subscribed, you know, because then you get the, or the follow if you're on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just hit the button to get the notification for the thing so you don't miss out on future episodes because the rest of this season some great guests and if you haven't listened to past seasons i would encourage you to go check out who some of the guests are if you're into super guitar stuff i got satriani i got walsh we got Ben skill we got Matheny, we got Schofield. there's a lot hey and if you're here because of the bluegrass thing because bluegrass and sierra and that side of things brought you Go check out the Bail of Flack episode because that's a great one. And there's many others that would apply to you as well. But you know what? I appreciate you being here, no matter how you got here. And I will see you next time. Peace!